You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hey, everybody, just one quick question before we get to this week's podcast. Are you enjoying these podcasts? If so, do me a favor. Go on to iTunes right now and give us a big, fat, juicy five-star rating or however many stars they have. I'm not even sure. Or write us a great review. It's the best way to promote theater to the rest of the web. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Ken Davenport here. You're listening to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am so excited for today's guest because he's one of my favorite composers and part of one of the greatest musical theater writing teams we have today. Ladies and listeners, welcome to the podcast. Tony Award winning composer Stephen Flaherty. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I first came to know Stephen's work when I wandered into the Booth Theater back in 1991. I was a sophomore at NYU. I didn't know what I was in for. It turned out I was into one of the most joyous nights I've ever had in the theater. It was uh, seeing Once in this Island, um, and it remains that to this day one of my favorites. Uh, in addition to Once in this Island, uh, some of Stephen and his collaborator Lynn Aarons' early work includes Lucky Stiff, My Favorite Year, which, uh, side note, Larger Than Life was one of my audition songs when I was an actor. Uh, and then, of course, Seussical, The Monumental Ragtime, which I was lucky enough to be the associate company manager on, Rocky, and uh, what I call their Lincoln Center shows, A Man of No Importance, Deseros, Glorious Ones, and so on. And upcoming, about to open in a few months out of town, Anastasia, based on the movie which featured his songs, including the Oscar-nominated Journey to the Past, and on and on and on. I could go on for days with just your bio. That is good research. Very good, Ken. (laughs) But um, enough bio stuff. Let's get to the juicy questions and answers. Tell us, when did you know you wanted to write for the theater? 
Well, you, you know, it's funny. I never thought of it as writing. I thought of it as making stuff up. And I think I've been making stuff up ever since I was a kid. I started uh, playing piano at age seven. I started making stuff up whenever I was 12. And I wrote my first uh, um, first musical whenever I was 14. And, and we did it at my high school. And it was hilarious. What was it called? It was called Pitts because I grew up in Pittsburgh, and it and each scene took <laughs> took place in a different locale, different neighborhood of my hometown, and each number was written in a completely different musical vocabulary, and each number was written in a different color ink. So, uh, of course, the big gospel spectacular was you know the, the final scene, and and we had a country western song, a rock and roll song, and. It was the most fun I'd ever had in my life. And oddly, uh, there was a subplot that involved Siamese twins. And this was way before Sideshow. So, Will yeah. we see a revival of Pitts? No, you will no. not. <laughs> you will not. And, and it, and it's, but, but it was the kind of thing that uh, it was two friends of mine uh, who were in the drama department who had gotten what they said were roles that weren't large enough for their talents that year. They decided to write their own show. And they said, do you want to write music? And I had never really thought of writing music, you know, but it's it, it, clearly I was a theater kid. And uh, it was, it was, we were a bit of a hit, you know, at my little school. And uh, I had a, a wonderful music teacher and a wonderful drama teacher. And they both said, you should do more of that. And, uh, and so I did. And uh, it's, this is all I've ever wanted to do. Like since I was a kid and I just was obsessed with theater and I had to be part of it. And also, you know, because you're a producer, uh, the re recent revival of Godspell, that is the first professional show that I ever saw. It came through my town. We were taken to it uh, because, you know, it starred Jesus. And so the nuns from my parochial school took us to see the Jesus musical uh, Godspell. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just I just thought I have to somehow be a part be a part of that. So you said, um, clearly I was a theater kid. And I hear this a lot from people yeah, that do the nerds. podcast. We're nerds, let's face it, yeah. So what <laughs> what is it that so clearly said you were a theater kid? What about the theater? Like, you're, you're obviously an incredibly talented composer. And even back then, obviously, you had a flair for music. Why the theater not say, I want to write like the Beatles? I want to write... I th I, hon I honestly think because, because theater and music theater in particular... Uh, combines so many art forms, and it's a, this American mongrel art form. And at the at the time as a kid, I was drawing, I was painting, I was trying to write stories, I was learning music, I was trying to write music, uh, I was putting on odd little shows in my basement, and I think all of that stuff. I, I thought I can use all of this in 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 creating musical theater, and and also for me personally. Uh, I was not kind of like a team sport kind of kid. You know, I was a personal best kind of a kid. I was really good at figure skating. and uh, But in terms of the team, I liked being part of a community. I liked being part of a team. And uh, I, I loved creating something with my friends. And I loved creating something as part of a community. And uh, I, I started and I never stopped. And like I'm, I'm lucky it worked out because I can't do anything else. This is all I can do, you know. So... So you're mm, a career in figure skating or career in That's right. theater. That's right. <laughs> uh, you leave high school. You're the hit of the high school. What happened after high school? Well, well, it's an interesting thing. It dawned on me slowly that the musical star of each high school then goes to college. And then if you're lucky, you become the musical star of the college. And then you come to New York. And it, it's a series of being thrown to the bottom of the barrel. And it's very humbling. And... Uh, 
I I was pretty much self-taught and I, and I needed to get some technique. And so I went to CCM, uh, Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. And at that time, uh, in in uh, the 80s, they didn't have uh, a program for writers of music theater. So I basically went there and studied uh, classical composition, orchestration, conducting, uh, took some theater classes and basically started making my little shows there. And I had no collaborator because, you know, this is Ohio, you know, <laughs> there's nobody to play with. So I became uh, a book writer and a lyricist and a music director and a composer. And uh, it was a wonderful time at that school because uh, there were so many talented people there. Uh, I was a freshman and Faith Prince was a senior and Jason Graw was there. And it was an amazing group of repertory players. And we would do uh, student-based shows. And then whenever I came to New York, I had my little group of repertory players from Cincinnati. And so they became the cast of Lynn's and My First Musical, which was Bedazzled, which is was based on the Peter Cook, Dudley Moore. And she said, where are you finding these amazing people? And I said, they're my classmates. And it was a good thing that we all moved as a group to the city. Any chance of us seeing a revival of Bedazzled? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Lynn and I, I guess it was two years ago, we did uh, a series of concerts at 54 Below because it had dawned on us slowly that... Um, we had been collaborating for 30 years, which is kind of impossible for me to believe, but that's true. And um, uh, we thought it would be really fun just to celebrate it because it was such a big round number. And so we thought we'll do it at 54 Below. And we wanted it to be equidistant between my birthday and her birthday. And we thought it would make it like a, like a celebration month and, and invite people that we worked with, people that we wanted to work with. And uh, we wanted to do some early songs. So so we had uh, actually two Bedazzled songs that we did as part of the evening. And then we did uh, two songs that we had written that year. We thought it would be kind of really cool to have songs that were written, you know, in, in the first year of our writing and songs in the, in the la and, you know, to that point, the, the last. And uh, God, what a fun time that was. And it's I should point out, it's a, it's a live CD. You can get this. It's called uh, uh, Aaron's and Flaherty, Nice Fighting You, which is a lyric from Lucky Stiff. We'll put a link to that uh, when we put up this podcast. So let's talk about Lynn. Obviously, Lynn did a podcast with me a few weeks ago. She loved it, too. Oh, good. Did, she, she, did you listen? I, I haven't heard it. No. Oh, good. Oh, so I feel like I'm about to do one of those like dating shows where I've talked to one partner on this side, and now I'm going to ask you. Well, you know, our answers are going to be totally different. We 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 thought if we would ever write a book, it would have to be like a he said, she said, and you could read Lynn's from you know from this cover, and then you'd flip the cover over, and then in my version, and I and my guess is it would be like the an amazing Rashomon story, like somewhere between these two tellings is what went down you're going to get an interest yeah. from a publisher after they hear this for sure because yeah. that book sounds fun so you meet her at the bmi workshop yeah. right yeah and what did you think when you met her did, did were you like oh this is the one this is i shouldn't say this but the, i found this to be true in a lot of workshops and a lot of music theater programs there's always a lot of terrific or you know good composers and there's always one good lyricist in any class that, and that's usually been my experience. And she was, she was so fresh in her approach to what she did. Uh, it, it was like, it was really different 
from what I would do. And, I, and my idea of what writing was about, I had a beard that year. You know, I was like, I would wear black, I had a beard. I would like lock myself in a monastic kind of room and, and, and somehow summon the muse and I would write music. And she came from a totally different background. She came from like the commercial and pop music world. And she would write on her feet. She would literally throw ideas around. And uh, it was much more of an improvisatory kind of background, which was totally different, you know, where I would score it all to paper. And and uh, at that time, um, well, you know, I had never really collaborated, you know, and I have to backpedal too. But the first week I was here, I, I got to go and meet Stephen Sondheim, believe it or not. Yeah, at, at his home. And I had a little cassette because that's what we had back then. We had things that were called cassettes. And I gave him a, a couple of my tunes and the short of it, or at least what I got from the critique was that he felt that I had a, a gift for music and musical counterpoint and and he didn't like my lyrics you know he didn't care for them so I thought okay maybe I should try you know this working with another lyricist it could be shake things up it could you know lead to a new or an exciting thing and so um, in BMI you do these class assignments and there's a one a, one a week and uh, it was literally the last class assignment, and I had not collaborated yet. And uh, Lynn was walking down the street, and I was maybe almost a block away, and I projected very far. And I said, Lynn, do you want to write a song together? Let's do, let's do this last song together. And she goes, really? Yeah. Oh, oh okay. And, and we had never... It was, a, it was an interesting first meeting because, like, she denies this, but, but she, she said, all right, so make, uh, let's hear something. Make something up. And I was not used to creating in front of another person. You know, it was like, ooh, I don't, you know, I, I felt kind of naked, honestly. And uh, it, was a, it was such a different way to, to, find, to find a song, to find a piece of music. And I realized, oh, I get it. Like, we both have a hand on, on the driving wheel. And we're trying to find uh, a way that we can connect to to find the song. And I, I I must say our first song was not good, but but the process of creating it was great. And uh, after after that, we said, oh, we should try to find a project. And that's when we were we began writing the dazzled, and uh, we just had so much fun. And it was a totally different way of working for me. And. Uh, and I think the whole thing about collaboration is, you know, why even collaborate? And it's because you can find up, find something that you wouldn't have been able to create on your own. That's what I think, you know. And uh, so we we just started and we didn't stop. And that was my first year in New York. I love that statement because it's a very selfless statement coming from an artist, especially someone well, who's been doing it all before. Yeah, that. yeah. You know, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing because to do, you know, to face a blank piece of paper or a blank screen each day, you know, you have to have either balls of brass or a huge ego or an incredible, immense faith. You know that some somehow an idea will come and manifest itself, or all three. You know, and I, I really think that writing is a, an enormous leap of faith. And um, after all of these years, I can't honestly tell you how it works because there is this, there is an element of mystery uh, that I think is wonderful. And I don't want to overanalyze or analyze that at all because it, it is alchemy and it is mysterious and uh, ideas fly in the side door at weird times and odd places. And um I think it's I think it's really exciting, and I think working you know Lynn and I have worked with young writers a lot recently, actually for for like 
decade and a half now. And um, you can teach them technique and you can teach them how to analyze the work of others. You can't teach them how to have an idea or where ideas come from. And I honestly don't know where they come from. And that's been part of the fun. And like, and no day is the same as the day that precedes it either. So each, each one of our writing days is you're starting from scratch. And I, I love that. So it's, you said it's part of the fun, but there have yeah. got to be those days when you stare at the blank page and nothing comes out. How do you deal with the famous writer's block if it ever pops up? You know what? I've never really had writer's block. I shouldn't say that because now that I have said that, you know. God, please it's, don't let me It's like you're tempting fate, but I I always believe that it, that it is a leap of faith and I, that there's more where that came from. And as a young writer, I used to freeze up sometimes. Because I would get to say measure 16. And you know at measure 16, there's a fork in the road. And if you go make choice A, the piece becomes that. and Or choice B, it becomes a different kind of thing. And rather than just making a choice or blindly going forward, I, I would not know which choice was the right choice. As if there were anything, you know, that was right or wrong. And, and Lynn's very... She loves to rewrite, and and I think the the craft of writing reveals you know reveals the song. So we might we might try many different approaches until we find the 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 paro- the, the approach that actually works for any given song moment. So I, I think believing that there are many different ways to get to where you need to go. I think that that's a valuable thing to know. Is your process for writing with Lynn the same as it was back then? How do you approach something now versus how you approach something? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because we tried, we had starts, actually false starts at a couple early shows. Like we we uh, we wrote a song score for for Bedazzled that became sort of spoken about a lot around town. Everyone wanted to hear the hear that show. Uh, we had a producers that wanted to produce that show. We could never get the rights to that show. So that never happened. And then we worked on our follow-up was an original idea that we were actually writing with George C. Wolfe. And this is like George C. Wolfe pre the Colored Museum, pre the Public Theater. And that was like a, an interesting notion in, ser- in search of a plot that we never found. And so all of these things, and, and you know, Lynn is like, she, she comes from... Uh, the commercial world, which moves much faster than my, you know, my monastic upbringing of music. So uh, then we began working on a third show. We hadn't been produced at that point. And I actually think that was an asset because I think it allowed us the time to get to know one another, to get to know one another's processes, which which at the beginning were very different. And, um, you know, we got to date longer. Before we, you know, were at that altar, and I think that was a great idea, you know. And we got to know one another, and uh, I think it deepened our relationship, and, and it deepened our uh, our writing craft. And I think if I had just come into New York, met Lynn in the first month, and I did, within six months, I'm writing with her, and the very first thing I try to write uh, got produced, which all of these things are happening. I think it would have given me like an incredibly distorted view of how things happen, you know, and I think having something not get produced, it makes it, it, it gives you a little more resilience, you know? And so, um, it was, it was maybe five years until we had our first show produced, which was lucky stiff. It's so funny. You say that about, uh, 
Pasek and Paul were on just a couple of weeks ago. They're great. They are fantastic. They but they, they talked about getting a show up. It happened very quickly for them and how they felt like they made some mistakes early on. And it was very difficult to get through that and on to their next show because it happened right. so fast. Well, well you know, uh, Lynn and I co-founded a program at the Dramatist Guild, which is an amazing program. It's called the Dramatist Guild Fellows. And it's one of the few programs here in New York City uh, for composers, librettists, lyricists, and playwrights. Because usually in a lot of the writing programs in New York, they tend to ghettoize the play, the, the word people, the playwrights, and then the music people are in, in like their own little clubhouse and uh, never the twain meet. And this program, it's, it's astounding. It's very, it's very intimate. Uh, there's a uh, mentorship. Uh, there's, um, a, opportunities to basically uh, ghost writers and ghost um, performers as guests. Uh, it's all about the process. And uh, Pasek and Paul were our youngest Dramatist Guild fellows. They were right out of college, and they were, like, so amazingly talented. And it, it was great to see them as, as kids. And now I'm, I was just talking about their new show at Second Stage. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to try to see it next week. Talking about Dear Evan Hansen, but we're getting yeah. back to you now. You're such a yeah. generous artist. You're um, talking about other people and how great they are. Um, what I love about your scores is the diversity of them, yeah. from the Caribbean rhythms of Once on this Island yeah. to Ragtime. And you actually just talked about Pitts, how Pitts had I know. It was different a... gospel country. Yeah. How do you access those different stuff? Do you do research before? What's the process of getting into the score itself? I'm, I'm just really open to all kinds of music. And my playlist is crazy all over the map. And even even as a young kid growing up, um, I wasn't really a rock and roller, but I was an R&B kid. And we had one of the great R&B stations in Pittsburgh called WAMO. And my father couldn't stand this, couldn't stand that kind of music. So he would give me the keys to the car, and I'd be like seven, and I'd be like a seven-year-old starting up the engine and listening to the radio in that car. And it was it was amazing. So I I really uh, responded to rhythm and responded to those kinds of rhythms. And then at the then a little later, I began studying classically. So I had a classical piano background. I spent a summer working in Nashville, Tennessee. So I picked up a lot of. Uh, stuff down there. Uh, I began studying, you know, music theater scores. And um, I think, honestly, I, I never like to repeat myself. And and I know that Lynn and I, in uh, looking at material, we try to find something that we've not done before. You know, and I, I think that that keeps it fresh. Uh, the process of writing the shows is always different. And it always is dictated by... Uh, the subject matter and the musical materials. Like like uh, Once in this Island was a show that didn't want to be written at the piano, you know, where Ragtime was a show that had to be written at the piano, you know, for, for a, a lot of that, that music. And um, I, I'm just fascinated by it. I, I actually did a, a somewhat experimental, really cool piece this past summer at uh, the Old Globe in San Diego called In Your Arms. And... Uh, it was Chris, Christopher Gatelli, uh, the wonderful choreo choreographer, director, who came up with the, the notion of let's do a theme and variation show all about dance. Uh, and, and it was his really cool idea to come up with one topic, which is romantic destiny. And then he went to 10 different playwrights and said, you can write on this theme 
It can be uh, any gender, any culture, any time period, any story, uh, any style, comedy, tragedy. Um, and uh, the, only, the only thing is you can't use words. So they, would, they were writing basically scenarios that then would be all danced. And so we had 10 of them. And the stories were so wildly different. And then I would have to find some way to translate uh, each playwright's uh, individual story and their point of view and their approach uh, into music. And so each of them was, it, it was really like writing a complete musical. And it took us seven years to get the, to get the show together because we would only do maybe two at a time, three at a time. Uh, because they were all over the map. Uh, like Douglas Carter Bean wrote a piece, uh, New York City in the Roaring Twenties, at a drag ball at Webster Hall. And I thought, okay, know how to do that. And then uh, then uh, uh, there would be a, a piece by Alfred Urey, and it was uh, about young love in 1950 in Atlanta, Georgia, in a Cadillac, and uh, up on Lover's Lane. I thought, oh, I, can, I, I know how to do that. And uh, then David Henry Huang early on threw me a, a huge... Uh, curveball. Uh, it was a piece set in modern day Shanghai in a techno club, and then what? Then the lead actor, uh, uh, somebody puts a, a drug in his drink. He's transported back in time to the Ming Dynasty. He had written it for a friend of his who was a star of the Peking Opera, and he, he said it's really important to have martial arts <laughs> in this piece. And I just thought, I just thought that is the wildest thing I've ever heard. And I was, that, I was so scared for the longest time about that particular piece. And then finding a new way to approach it, uh, it actually, it actually became great, great fun. And, and it became a favorite, you know, and, and the thing that scared me most was the thing that, that probably gave me the most joy in the, in the long run. Do you think any subject can be made a musical? you think any story or does a musical require a certain something? And if so, what's that something that you look for? Well, I, I always feel that it needs to have some sort of heightened quality, you know, whether it's in the language or uh, I, I think the hardest thing to translate into musical terms is something that's very kitchen sink. And, and for me personally, um, uh, after writing Ragtime, uh, which was a, a wonderful experience for all of us. And we loved working with Terrence McNally. And he said, you know, we should absolutely do another show. But we figured Ragtime is so, that you couldn't do a show larger than Ragtime. So we thought, why don't we do the exact opposite thing? We'll do a miniature show. And he said, is there a kind of music that you're interested in? And you know, as you know, the, the Irish people in Ragtime are the villains. And so we were just cutting all of their music, you know, those evil Irish people. And of course, I'm Irish-American. My parents were not happy that, like, that the language of, and, and the poetry and the music of my people had been cut, you know, from this quintessentially American show. So I thought, you know, I, I would like to try my hand at doing something Irish. And uh, I said to Terrence, I said, we should look at different things. Uh, and I said, I'm not interested in doing the potato famine musical. I said, but I would like to do something uh, that has an Irish color, Irish flair. And uh, Terrence found a, uh, a small independent film called A Man of No Importance uh, that starred um, Albert Finney, uh, Brenda Fricker, Rufus Sewell. 
And uh, it was all about the creation of theater and it was all about the love of friendship and it was a man's uh, coming out story. And it was very naturalistic. And I couldn't for the life of me get music out, out of that because it, because it was so naturalistic. And I, I said, I, I can't find the heightened quality. I don't know how to get them get them singing. And also the, the lead character who in our show is uh, played by Roger Reese uh, was so secretive and he didn't really have a scene partner to talk about what he was feeling, you know, in his heart. So it was a virtually impossible getting this guy, guy to sing. And then Terrence gave us a great gift. He made uh, a surround for the show. So the entire show uh, took place in one instant in the main character's mind. And it was him remembering what had happened uh, in, in the past couple of weeks to, to bring him to what was a low point uh, for him. And also uh, the character of Oscar Wilde is mentioned in the film. He's not in the film. And Terrence put him right in the show. So all of a sudden there was a fantasy character, uh, Oscar Wilde, and he was Alfie Byrne, our hero, his scene partner. And the minute Oscar Wilde was allowed to be in the room with him, the music just poured out. And it was it was the most amazing thing. I, I couldn't understand. I couldn't get this character to sing at all before. And now I couldn't get him to shut up, you know, because because he had Oscar Wilde there. And... Uh, Terrence is a is a funny guy because you know because uh, he'll write a scene which will inspire a song and um, usually whenever we're presenting the song you know it's it's a lot of information to analyze so he tends to be very analytical and every single song I've ever played for him he's never said wow can I hear that again (laughs) never once this is the entire score of ragtime never once and uh, I've uh, written with Lynn a song called Man in the Mirror which was uh, our character of Alfie Byrne singing to his reflection, but in fact he's singing to Oscar Wilde, and uh, he drops a huge plot bomb at the end of the song. And Terrence just lit up. He goes, oh my God, that's our show. That's the sound of our show. Will you please play it again? The only time, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> he, he, well, come he, on, turn he, the wheels of a dream, yeah, daddy. No, said, no. no, not at all. And he blushes whenever I bring this up, but I think he was so taken because I... I don't, it, because I, because it had been such a struggle to find the musical core or the sound or a way to get music to come out, and that that was cracking the nut. And then the show wrote itself quite quickly after that. And for those of you out here who, who don't know it, go get that recording. It's a terrific score and one of my favorite streets of Dublin. Oh, uh, having Stephen Pasquale sing that, I will never forget that moment. Uh, so. I'm going to ask you one of my James Lipton questions, speaking oh. of some of your most memorable songs. I want wow. you to imagine that the Smithsonian calls you okay. and says, Stephen, we have room for one of your songs oh, wow. in the Institute. Just one. Which one of all the songs that you've written would you want preserved? You know, that's a hard question because I always think of songwriting and creating theater as like, parenting and hopefully it's good parenting and it's like you never want to pick a favorite you know like you never want to pick son number two over son number three or you know whatever um i would think i would think it would have to be something from ragtime though because um that show came to us as a gift and i some some of your listeners may know um some might not but you know that was a show that we had to audition to get and 
it was a it was a majorly crazy story to get to get the show, and I was so happy that that was part of it because I, I remember reading in the New York Times that uh, the theatrical rights for the novel Ragtime had been acquired, and I'm like, shit, like Candor and Ever are gonna like, oh, with that show, all oh, those lucky guys, and whenever they just opened it up to basically a songwriting derby, I think there were maybe twelve teams, and. Um, we we got a beautifully written uh, treatment by Terrence McNally that was sixty five pages, and you could write. Uh, well, basically, you had, this, the assignment was you had to write four songs based on Terrence's treatment, and we knew in order to get the, to get this job, which I was obsessed with, I was I I, I was so passionate about it. Uh, because I had been a ragtime piano player since I was 12. Remember the sting? Remember that? Yeah. And the, like all the little kids were like playing the entertainer and, and, and I loved it. I just thought to tr try to take that kind of music and yet make it sound fresh again and reinvent it. And it was about America and about uh, all of these different ingredients in one, you know, in, in, in one stew. I, I, I just, I just thought I really want to do this. And we had, we had 11 days to, to write arrange, produce, record, mix, stick it on a cassette back in the day of a cassette and hand it in. And, and the day we had to hand it in was the opening night of Showboat. I mean, it was all this crazy theatrical Garth Drabinsky timeline. And we started counting the days that we had to, to, to do all of that. We had 11 working, 11 working days. So being practical, you know, we just decided, you know, I, I will write two songs, music first, and Lynn would write two songs lyric first. We would swap. And uh, three of the four songs are in the show. And so I th I think for me personally, I think I would probably pick the title song, which which is also opens the show and it's, uh, it's ragtime. And um, I would pick it because I remember the process of writing that song. And it was... There was such velocity, with, with such passion, it wound up being 10 minutes long. It was like incredibly long, this song. And also uh, just trying to see with only so many musical ingredients how you could tell that much story, uh, that much about the theme, that much about the musical character of the evening, and somehow make it a cohesive, exciting opening. And that was a music first one, you know. So... Uh, that was, I, I just remember that as being an exciting, thrilling time, you know, writing that. What were the other two songs everyone's dying to know? Oh, oh the other two? Well, uh, it's a song that we close uh, Act One with uh, called Till We Reach That Day. And uh, that was an interesting one because that, that also was music first. And it was going to be this, the uh, funeral of Audra McDonald's character, Sarah. And so I wrote like a gospel tinged uh song that would be sung by the ensemble and lynn said well you know it sounds so hopeful and i said well i said they're feeling rage but yeah this is something that would be sung you know something like in this flavor and she said well i think that the subtext of rage has to start bubbling forward so i go great idea so i i wrote uh this really angry ragtime figure that was what Cole House was thinking, and then, and then eventually other people, and it, and eventually it became a song like, we can't allow this to happen anymore in this country. And having those two kinds of music at odds with one another, it was really what made the song. And I listened to this demo to this day, and I'm like, why is that demo better than what we had on either recording? 
and I had forgotten we had a secret ingredient. And here it is. Um, on the alto line, singing, like right at the edge of, of, of it, was Billy Porter. <laughs> so he was singing the women's parts. And I'm like, that was the secret ingredient. That's why it, it never had that, because Billy Porter was never singing that line ever again in any version of the show. And that, but that demo was hot. Oh, then, then, the, then, the la then the other song is a song called uh, Gliding, which is uh, Tata and his daughter, the immigrant character. I, I tell a lot of people that one of my greatest memories in the theater was I was the associate company manager on yeah. that show. And yeah. um, our office was in the basement of the Ford Center. I remember it well. And whereas some people would take a coffee break or a smoke break, I would take a break and just watch the show because it was such a magical production. It, 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 was, it, was, a, it was an incredible time for all of us. I think all of us that were able to get near that show, it, it changed our lives, I think, really for the better. What did you think when Garth went bankrupt, went to jail, all this nonsense? Well, you know, every single day that I worked with Garth was an exciting day. And, and if you would say, what is his talent? I would say his talent was making other people excited. And, and it was... It, it, it was, first of all, he had an amazing taste. Secondly, I always felt I was so protected, you know, by him that he, he, was, he would not let the show off the tracks. You know, it was a very extravagant time. And we couldn't fully understand how we were able to get these enormous orchestras. And uh, we, uh, he commissioned a, a suite of music from from the piece which was really cool because i was able to just look at the music for music's sake without you know having to serve story or the book and uh i create, created a big symphonic piece with william david brone our inspired orchestrator and we recorded it with an orchestra of like 65 and that's like how's that happening and none of it quite made sense but it but we we were just loving every moment while it lasted so you know he's a complicated guy is that what you like to get out of producers? What when you, you've worked with a lot of them, from Garth to Barry Weisler, very different styles and types. And, yeah, and Andre Bishop. We've done many, many shows right. uh, with Andre, both at Playwrights Horizons and uh, Lincoln Center. So, and, what do you look for from that relationship? Like, what would make you want to work with a producer today? Or I always, I always think I, I, I bring it back to good parenting. I think. Each show is individual. It, it has its own personality. I think you need to deliver exactly the uniqueness of that show. And I don't think it's possible nor advisable to make a musical or any piece of theater all shows to all people. Because once you start doing that, its individuality flies out the window. I mean, Once on this Island is so special because it, it followed no rules. And it was very much its own kind of show, kind of score, kind of storytelling. And uh, in the creation of the show is absolutely, absolutely pure. We never designed that show to be, now this will be a Broadway show. It, we were, were just creating something with people that we loved. And, and it was about creating um, magic out of nothing. And that's what the show was. And uh, the, the fastest writing I've ever done, we wrote the whole show in six months. You know, and then and then changed one song on its way to production, and uh, I think that was good producing. That was Andre Bishop at Playwrights Horizons. He never he he created uh, a safe space in which we could try new things. And uh, early on, uh, we had a mentor, and it was Alfred Urey, 
who uh, you know wrote uh, The Robber Bridegroom, which is having a wonderful revival right now. And he said, remember, your show is so unique. Throw out every single rule that you ever learned at BMI. He said, it's, it has its own rules. It has its own logic. You don't need the comic song for the parents in slot number two. You know, you don't need the... And uh, I think he was just saying, let the show be its own unique self. And that's great advice. And if you are lucky to find a producer who can encourage that, then that's gold. I think you get in trouble whenever... You know, the marketing is leading the show, you know, and, and of course, I'm not saying marketing is not important. It is. But, you know, I, I think the most important thing is the uniqueness of the show and allowing for that. Of all your shows, which is the one that's changed the most during previews? Oh, wow. I would say mm, I know the one that changed the most from the beginning of the writing till we got on the stage. That was the glorious ones which is a show that took us 13 years to bring to an audience. And uh, it, it, it was really hard, and I couldn't figure out why it was so difficult. And it, it was very Candide-like. It was uh, very picaresque. It's based on a novel by Francine Prose, who's a, a wonderful writer. Uh, and uh, it's about the members of a comedia troupe. And uh, the novel, each chapter is told from the point of view of a different character in the troupe. So we started out, it was, and there's so many incidents, so many characters, and, and we started out as a quite a large scaled show, and we did a, a first reading uh, at Lincoln Center, I believe in 1993, and people say, how long did it take that show to be written? And I said, let me just put it this way, The Ingenue was played by Donna Murphy in the first reading. That's all you need to know about that show. And and it's also about changing of uh, theatrical tastes and trends. And it's about these young Turks who come in, in this world of theater and they basically steal the theater or morph it or change it uh, from uh, the, the, the more uh, established artists. So there's an older artist and his, and his lady friend and a younger artist a younger young Turk in his muse. And, and we started out writing that show and I thought, I totally get this young Turk character. I understand it. And then it took us 13 years. So by the end of it, I go, I'm totally relating with the middle-aged character. I, I really get his story. And I, I think it was actually a blessing. It took that long because I was able to understand every aspect. But that changed the most. It started out as a large, large uh scale show and by the time we reached Lincoln Center uh, it was seven characters playing all of these different parts in their style and, and we had actually we were at the point where we were going to give it up because we couldn't we couldn't crack the nut of the show we had some amazingly exciting and beautiful songs but we didn't have a show that we could make work and oddly uh, to her great credit Francine Prose the novelist she said I know you've been working all these years and you keep renewing the rights for this novel. And, you know, I've never heard any of the songs. So before you give it up and let it go, I'd like to hear some of the songs. And we thought that's a fair request. So uh, she and her husband came to, to Lynn's apartment and we just started playing through a couple of the songs from the glorious ones. And she, after the first song was in tears, let me hear more, let me hear more. And she would, she was like, so effusive, so unbelievably supportive, and and uh, she said it. Ha- she said these songs are like one act plays. This has to be in a theater, and we said, well, I said no offense, but we can't find a way to lasso your plot. 
I said, the plot is driving us mad. And so she basically said, like, throw out what you want, use what you will. And and she was amazingly generous, and that, that, that helped us crack the nut of the glorious ones. Incredible. And now you're just a couple months away from your newest piece couple hitting months. a stage. Weeks? I am starting rehearsal in two weeks from from yeah from today so when you wrote the songs for anastasia for the movie did you have any idea that you'd be a few weeks away from the no. regional <laughs> no 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 it, it it came out of the blue we we had been developing uh an animated film musical for disney and this would tell you something about timing you know because uh, as you uh, well i don't want to go there but hang on I'll go there. Oh, I'll go there. Okay. So we were working on on an idea that I thought was a a really cool idea. It was about the migration of whales, and it was about community. And as we all know, the whales communicate through song. So they literally do sing. They literally communicate that way, larger than life. And I had been, for my own fun, believe it or not, listening to these amazing Roger Payne recordings of the, the whales singing. Elaborate, elaborate tunes, like really amazing melodies. And I thought, oh, it could be about fathers and sons. It's literally about a journey. It's literally about a migration. Uh, and we started working on on the piece. And uh, it starts out with the whales singing, and then it becomes the sound of the human voice. And then bit by bit, they're singing lyrics. And I we, we loved working on it. And of course, you can see this coming like a train. They were working on another animal, animal musical, at the same time Disney was. And so it was something that I don't think anyone's ever heard of. It was called The Lion King. And so there was the, the whale show, <laughs> the, the Lion King. And I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. There was a wonderful scene in The Lion King that was from our whale project. You may remember it. It's like whenever he looks up and sees his father in the sky as a constellation. I found it even more moving when it was whales, but I, I just put it out there. I just put it out there oh, with, no, with no judgment. I try not to laugh at these I podcasts, know. but I can't help I know. It. And, then, and then, you, then you think like the Lion King, and then you think you would have bypassed that, and then Ragtime comes out, and we open uh, this amazing show with the, the best cast day ever, and we were across the street from the Lion King, the stage musical. And it's like that, that, you know, that crazy show is just like biting, you know, it's Pac-Man at night rear so anyhow we 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 let go but because of the people we met at disney we got a a chance to uh um uh work on a piece for 20th century fox which which would become anastasia and uh i i love the world i i love the the fact that uh there was a a mysterious element to it i found that amazing and uh it, it was a really great experience for us and and these these films take long, a long time this, this took 4 years and so we were actually writing ragtime simultaneously to anastasia so in the time it took us to write 35 songs that reached the stage of ragtime uh we wrote uh six songs i believe <laughs> and made it into the movie which tells you that's like that's like a little window into like the difference of process but uh uh, the, the experience, the world, all that was fantastic. And then all these years later, uh, we were approached, is this something that you'd like to do for the, for the stage? And I, I, think, I think we both loved the material so much, but I think if we were to go with it, we wanted to reconceive you know, for the stage. We didn't want it to be, here is an animated film that we're going to put like frame by frame into, you know, into a theatrical <clears throat> telling. 
And also, as some of you may know, uh, <laughs> the film did play rather fast and loose with Russian history. You know, Rasputin did not rise from the grave. He was not accompanied by an albino bat and these colorful green minions that would break into song. That, that None of that happened as far as I know. So, so we thought it would be interesting to go a little more back to what the story was. So I, I, so I actually think the stage musical, uh, even though we have five, five songs uh, from the motion picture, it's really a new show and it's inspired by the legend of, of Anastasia. And uh, this is our third show with Terrence McNally. So that's been great. And I, I think Terrence was interested only if we could treat the show as if it were an original musical. So even though we have a, a like a song, like Journey to the Past uh, is in the show, it's used in a, an entirely different context in, uh, the, than the film. And I actually think it's stronger. So, you know, we're, we're, we're excited. We, we're two weeks and we roll up our sleeves and, you know, hear it sing. So... It's wonderful. Incredible. So it opens in Hartford in just uh, in weeks, and then hopefully yeah. Broadway later yeah. on this next season, perhaps. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, if you're in the Hartford area, uh, we begin performances uh, May 12th. We open officially the 27th, and then we're running into uh, into June. And we're, we're excited. This is the first time we've uh, worked with uh, Darko Trezniak, uh, who did a Gentleman's Guide. And uh, he's he's a wonderful director, and he's kind of the perfect director for this for for this piece. And um, it's uh, it, it's wonderful re- going back to that, you know. And I thought uh, I thought it could be difficult, you know, because that was a world that we were quite involved in twenty years ago, you know, musically. But I had done so much research that it was and must have been like like in me, and and it was actually very fluid writing. And we were right back, uh, you know, into into that world, and you know, we, I, I've been able to go deeper musically, which is exciting. Oh, well, I'll definitely be there for that. Okay, last question. Mm. I call this my genie question. Uh oh. I want you to imagine genies are good. Don't be scared. I want you to imagine. Wait, is this about Aladdin? Well, sort of. Okay, but it's right. not about the Lion King. So oh, okay. it's Disney. Well, that's good. I feel I feel like I'm in a safe space then. Okay, Mustafa right. knocks on your door. Yeah, that's and says, right. No, the genie comes <laughs> to you and says, "Stephen, your contributions to the American musical theater have just been so incredible. I want to thank you for that. Thank you, and genie. I want to grant you one wish." Ah. Now, Stephen, you're such a positive person. You look at everything's fun, even when you're faced with challenges. What makes you angry? What is the one thing about Broadway that keeps you up at night, that frustrates you so much, that makes you mad, that you would ask this genie to change with the rod of his lamp? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't understand why there can only be one hit. And I use that. I'm putting quotes around that word. Per season, you know, I don't, un- I don't understand that. There, uh, I think the theater landscape used to be there was a whole variety of different exciting work, you know, uh, in, in any given season. And now it seems like either you're a hit or you're, or you tank, you know. And there's like, well, like whatever happened to any sense of middle ground? Whatever happened to the numbers of two through nine, you know? And I, I don't understand that, you know. And I, I find a healthier atmosphere in the regional theater and I find a healthier atmosphere in terms of not only for the working condition and for the creative aspect, but, but for the audiences too, in, in off Broadway, 
you know, I, I remember the, the season that, that it was like, I saw two shows. I saw a show on Friday and a show on Saturday. I saw Rent on Friday at New York Theater Workshop. And I saw Floyd Collins at Playwrights Horizons on Saturday. Amazing shows. Totally having their own sense of self. Totally uh, the voice of their individual creators. And uh, and as different as anything. And and I like uh, I, I'd like to think that the the adventuresome work will continue, you know, and, and this this season it's actually been there's been some some really cool stuff, but I I find that most of my exciting nights in the theater are not on Broadway, you know, and I wish I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because uh, the cost of making musicals is so great now. I mean, what what's your theory? I don't know. Yeah, it's we're become because it's so expensive. It's yeah. getting harder and harder to take risks. But luckily, something bursts through like Hamilton, yeah. and hopefully yeah. convinces all of us out there to go like, "Oh, maybe we should take or Fun Home." We've seen some. Good I, mean, stuff. I mean, look at the look at the public theater the, the, these past two years. I mean, it's that it's like prime uh, a prime example of creating a, a a safe creative space for artists to do their work. And frankly, it's you know musicals are slow cookers you know some some happen very very rapidly a lot most you know have to be developed and nurtured over over time you know and and that uh, oscar and that institution they've created that and it's it's such exciting work such a variety of work and i remember seeing uh, hamilton downtown and i thought this is the kind of show that joe papp loved because it it respects the history of the art form and makes it new and and the cross-cultural aspect of it and just the boldness and the freshness and within those first five seconds uh it has such a strong identity and sense of self you know and it's and that's none of that is by chance you know and a lot of it is by producer i mean not to not to discredit lin-manuel and his talented collaborators but for Oscar to create that environment for that to happen, it's it's special. So. Well, thank you so much for being here and for being such an incredible positive spirit in the American Musical Theater. If you listeners are not excited about being involved in the theater after listening to Stephen <laughs> talk today, I don't know what will get you there. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank we you. look forward to Anastasia. Oh, and you know, I like to play one degree of separation between oh. my current guest and my next guest. Oh, my yeah. next guest is Meredith Blair of the Booking Group, which I believe booked the tours of Ragtime and oh. Seussical. So there's always a connection. This there, 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 there always is. It's like two degrees of Ken Davenport. <laughs> I like that game. That's, we'll probably yeah. play that next week. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time. Okay, everybody, this podcast is over, so now you know what to do. Go on to iTunes. Give us a great rating. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. I'm gonna be a producer. Look out, Broadway. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.